0: So, hey, how are you? Welcome here. Are you here? Welcome. Good. Yes. (laughs) Good. Uh, Say hello to those of you joining us over in Mission and East Abbey. And before we jump into the text in John 13, I also want to let you know about a special event this week uh, so we are actually hosting uh, our national conference for our Mennonite Brethren Churches, and you probably haven't heard much about that because it is primarily church leaders come from across the country. Thursday and Friday, all day long, Thursday and Friday, but in the evenings of that conference, there are two public sessions that are open to uh, anybody free of charge. So if you're able to come out, if you're interested in these talks on Thursday and Friday night, Dr. Ian Proven, uh, retired prof from Regent College, uh, is gonna be speaking on Thursday night. He has done a ton of research research in the whole area of medical assistance and dying and uh, gender issues and all uh, human sexuality, all of those issues. And then Friday night, our own Dr. Andy Steiger, who is Apologetics Canada, part of Northview. He's not a stranger to any of us. So anyway, Thursday and Friday night, those are open to the public, 7 o'clock if you're interested. I wanted to make sure that everybody at all of our sites knew about that. So, okay, grab your Bibles. We are in John chapter 13. Uh, So you will know by now, uh, we are midway through this study in John's gospel. John 12 is the hymn. Point The public ministry has come to an end. He is now spending these last few hours in private with just the inner circle, his disciples. And we started John 13 last weekend and uh, drilling into this story of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. And looking at that act of humility that Jesus said, I've given this as an example to you. You've seen me serve you. This is how leadership, this is how authority in the kingdom of God works, turns it upside down. The greatest among you must be your servant. And then also digging into that key phrase in the middle there when he said to Peter, if I've washed you, you're clean. And talking about the joy that there is in the washing, the cleansing, the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, that the old us is dead, buried, and gone. That old identity of who I was, if I've been washed in Jesus, I have a new identity, and I'm walking with Him. So we're going to pick it up uh, in this conversation as we keep reading, and we are getting into the most famous betrayal story in the history of humanity, and the story of a guy named Judas Iscariot. And that name Judas is well known uh, inside the church and outside the church as well. The very name Judas has come to be uh, equated with the term betrayer. Everybody knows what a Judas is. Now, you will know this, that in world history, there are uh, tons of betrayal stories. Uh, It's interesting, I googled it this week. If you want to have some interesting reads on the history of humanity, just google famous betrayal stories. There are literally dozens and dozens and dozens of them. Uh, So Julius Caesar, one of the most famous, uh, betrayed by his uh, uh, supposedly his nephew, Brutus, who uh, plots his assassination and takes part in the murder of his own uncle. Uh, Seventy years ago, back in the 50s, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg became the first U.S. civilians, not political or military leaders, civilians to be put to death. They went to the electric chair for espionage, convicted of selling state secrets to the Soviets during the height of the Cold War. And these true-life espionage-type stories, you know, that we're all fascinated with, they have spawned an entire industry of books and movies. uh, Hollywood makes a billion dollars uh, selling the great spy stories of double agents and hidden identities and all of these stories that we so enjoy being entertained by. In fact, uh, so many of them are embedded in our psyche that I wouldn't even have to mention the name. If we could just play the soundtrack of some of these, you would know immediately what I'm speaking of. Dun, 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 dun. Like, you know, you're right. I don't have to say James Bond 007 or Jason Bourne or Mission Impossible. You would just know it from the music behind the scenes. So, I've said this before our daughter married a German, their church finding in Berlin, East Berlin specifically. And on some of our first visits there, we did all the classic touristy stuff. We went to all the sites that you had to see from World War II, the underground bunkers where people hid away during the bombings of Berlin, uh, the Berlin Wall, what is left of it, the Holocaust Museum. But I think of all the tours that we did in that first visit, the one that impacted me most deeply was when we toured the former Stasi Museum, the uh, the Stasi Museum, rather, of the headquarters of the so-called Ministry of State Security. The Ministry of State Security that came in late 40s, 48, 49, by 1950 was up and running when the Soviets took over East Germany and they built that wall around Berlin and they began to spy on their own people. Uh, the equivalent of the uh, Soviet KGB, KGB rather, it was the Stasi Police. And the Stasi Police built the largest civilian spy network in the world. At the height of their network, they employed over 50. not not 50, 500,000 civilians. In fact, some estimates uh, think that one in three people in East Berlin were actually informants for the Stasi police. And so you can imagine the uh, the psychological damage that this did to a generation. From 1950 to 1990, during their 40-year reign of terror, over 250,000 East Germans were arrested, imprisoned, and majority deported off to Siberia, most of them to their death. The psychological damage on an entire generation. And in 2006, a full-length feature film was built to tell the story, a bit of a, a documentary-drama combination, the lives of others that unpacked, and it won international awards of, of neighbor spying on neighbor. Can you imagine this great betrayal that people lived with? But the greatest betrayal in human history, for sure, is the story of Judas Iscariot, who for 30 pieces of silver, betraying his friend with a kiss. And there's tons of artwork, both paintings and sculptures in various cathedrals around the world. One of the most famous, uh, this, uh, this sculpture of Judas kissing <laughs> Jesus. His very name has come to being mean betrayer. When you hear the word Judas, you know you're speaking of the betrayer, which is interesting because the name Judas in New Testament days was actually a common name. There would have been many young men named Judas. In fact, in the New Testament, as you're reading through the scriptures, you will come across several men by the name of Judas. In fact, one of Jesus' own half brothers was named Judas. It was a common name. It was based on the, the Old Testament Hebrew name Judah, which simply meant praise. And its shortened form was Jude. And an adaptation was Judas. So it was a very common name, but after Judas Iscariot, nobody was naming their babies Judas. Nobody today. We've never had a child dedication, to my knowledge, with baby Judas. Ah, cute kid. What's his name? Betrayer. No, we don't do that. Jesus has already predicted over a year earlier in John 6, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? And he spoke of Judas, who was going to betray him. And so our text, John 13, is really a one-act play. It's a very simple story. And we're going to look at it in four parts. We're going to look at the story itself, just look into the betrayer who is being revealed here, spend most of our time there. But then there's three takeaways for us in the text. There's a comfort here. There's a challenge here. And there's also a warning to us in this text. And so we're going to look at the betrayer first and foremost. And in order to look at it, just jump back in your mind if you were here last weekend or just scan back to the first half of the chapter. In John 13, 11, Jesus speaking to Peter, and he says, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. Now, I mentioned this last week and that in English, it can be singular or plural. You, you need to know the context. It's not you, Peter, are clean. He's talking to Peter, but now he uses a plural, all y'all. So in the ESV, in the English, we have you are clean. But in the DSV, the Deep South version, you got the y'all, all y'all. All y'all are clean, plural. But not every one of you. So verse 18 to 20. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one whom I sent. So we'll just pause there for a moment. Look at a few things in that context there. Not all of you sitting at this table with me, Jesus said, will know and understand and do, verse 17, and be blessed. Not all of you are clean. And I know whom I have chosen, he says. Now that phrase could be taken in a couple different ways. You could say, I know. I know the ones I've chosen. Emphasis on the knowing. That Jesus knew full well who was going to betray him, knew full well that Peter would deny him, that Peter, James, and John would fall asleep in the garden, that all of them would run away, that Thomas would doubt, and that ultimately Judas would betray him. I know your hearts. But there's a difference here because he says to Simon Peter in Luke 22, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So there's a difference in Peter's denial Peter's betrayal. He's going to be severely tested, but in the end, Jesus assures him, You're going to come through it and you're going to be more useful to me. But there is one at the table who I also know, and he has a hardened heart. Satan has gotten through to him, and he will not turn around. He will not repent. He's going to go out with that dark soul. I know the ones I've chosen. But you could also look at it from the emphasis on I know whom I've chosen. I know whom I've chosen, and and several references. Of course, we could connect it to the choice of the elect, and not to get into a huge, long debate about Calvinism and Arminianism and all that kind of stuff, but you get to Revelation, and it's who are those standing around the throne of God. We're told it is the elect. You can debate as long as you want about how do you get there, how do you become one of the elect, but nevertheless, the elect are going to stand before the throne. And Jesus says in Mark 13 that at the end of time, things are going to get so dark that if the Lord didn't cut it short, we would all die. But it says, for the sake of the elect, Mark 13, whom he chose, right there, it connects it. The elect whom he chose, he shortened those days. So it could be a reference to God's children in general. I know who I chose. But certainly it could be a reference to the twelve. I know of these 12. So in Luke 6, it says, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray all night long. And when day came, he called his disciples to himself and he chose from them the 12. I know whom I've chosen, the elect and the macro scale. I know who I've chosen, you 12 at the table. But most specifically and most dramatically, I think what Jesus is saying in this moment is, I know whom I have chosen for this particular task. And we need to be very clear in our understanding of the sovereignty of God and what Jesus knew and did not know, how the events of these next few hours were entirely, entirely under the control of Jesus. He was not a victim in this circumstance. That Jesus himself had literally hand-selected the one that he knew would fulfill the scriptures. That when he chose Judas back years earlier, he knew that this would be the one. Chosen specifically so that at the end of verse 18, it says, the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate bread has lifted his heel against me. That the scriptures would be fulfilled. So that phrase is used with Judas several times in the New Testament. Acts chapter 1, just a few weeks later, as they are gathered in the upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit to descend at Pentecost, There's this conversation, we need to replace Judas. He's now dead and gone. And they say, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. That the Holy Spirit spoke through David about Judas. You go back and you read David's writings, and you will never find David saying specifically the name Judas. But David on many, many occasions talks about betrayal. And as you connect the dots between the various New Testament texts that refer to Judas and Old Testament fulfillment, you find at least four psalms, Psalm 41, Psalm 55, Psalm 69, Psalm 109, all connect the dots to this particular passage. Psalm 55 is one of the most heartfelt when you read it and think through it. It says, therefore, it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me. Then I could hide from him. It is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. My close brother or sister in the faith, you're the one who have turned your heel on me. And scholars debate who was it that David was talking about when he wrote this particular psalm. Some will say, well, it must have been King Saul who hated him so much, who pursued him, who made his life miserable, and maybe that's true. Some will say, no, it was Ahithophel, who in Absalom's conspiracy, his own son who pushes David off the throne and claims to be the new king in Jerusalem and chases David out of town. And as David is running from Absalom, he gets the news, 2 Samuel 15. David goes up the Mount of Olives. He's weeping as he goes. He's barefoot with his head covered. He's left the the palace in such a rush. And it is told to him, Ahithophel is among the conspirators. Ahithophel, who was one of David's closest advisors, his closest men in his cabinet, you might say, uh, his right-hand man, you might say, has turned tail and has joined the forces who are sending him out. But the specific quote here in John 13 comes from Psalm 41. And it says, My enemies said of me in malice. When will he die? That's great. That's what enemies say, right? When will he die and his name perish? All who hate me whisper together about me, and they imagine the worst for me. So my enemies and those who hate me, but then it goes on to say this, but even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, one who we sat at the table together, has lifted his heel against me. You see, Jesus knows what's coming in the next few hours. And in verse 19, he's saying, I tell you this in advance. I'm telling you now that when it happens and ultimately you don't understand it in this moment, but in the next few hours, the next few days, and certainly the next few weeks, you are going to come to understand. And as you come to understand all of this, you're gonna understand that I am he. I am actually is how it is in the original. I am he, so we get it in English, but I am. You're gonna understand this. And it's an echo back to Exodus 3. Moses is sent to rescue the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he's like, But what shall I say to the people when they say, Who is it that sent you to us? And, and God speaks to Moses and says, Tell them this. Tell them the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they'll ask me, But what's his name? And what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel I am has sent me to you, the name of God, the great I am, that rolls its all the way through the scriptures. And Jesus is saying here, eventually you're going to come to understand everything that's happened. The scriptures are fulfilled and you're going to see this. You're going to have it confirmed in your heart and mind that I am the great I am. When the Holy Spirit brings to mind everything that I have taught you, when it all comes together in your mind and you're going to see and you're going to understand how so many Old Testament scriptures have been fulfilled, you will know that I am and you're going to go out with boldness. I'm going to send you out. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And then verse 20, as people receive you, they're actually going to be receiving me. As they receive you, they will understand they are receiving me and the one who sent me. So they receive your word, they receive Jesus, they receive the Father. Now by implication, the opposite is also true. If they don't receive you, if they reject you, uh, we're going to get there in a few weeks' time when we're over in John chapter 15, you get to the middle of that chapter and Jesus tells them in advance, this is what you're going to experience in the world if the world hates you. Know that it has hated me before it hated you. So yes, they may receive you. And if they're receiving you, they're actually receiving me and they're receiving the father who sent me. But also know that some will hate you because they hated me. Now, the rest of the story is pretty straightforward. It's pretty easy to understand. Verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus said, it is he to whom I'll give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he'd taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas was holding the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night, Now, there's lots of details in this story that people love to think about and argue about. Uh, Some people wonder about the seating arrangement. There were 12 of them at the table. Uh, Who was on the right? Who was on the left? Well, it's pretty clear from the text that John is to his right. They're leaning on their left elbow, and he leans back against him. John, the disciple Jesus loved And Last week, we threw Da Vinci's uh, picture up on the screen, that famous fresco and said how inaccurate it was because they wouldn't have been seated at chairs and they wouldn't have been seated along one side of the table. Probably a U-shaped table, but who's on his right and who's on his left? Because tradition would have it that the host would choose the most honored guests, one on the right and one on the left, and then in decreasing order. And so we would think that Judas would seat farthest away from Jesus. But some say, no, it is John on his right and Peter, who's always first, is on his left because... He can easily pass the bread to his beloved, but maybe it's Judas in that place of honor because he says, the one I pass the bread to, so if he's dipping it with his right hand and then reaching across to his left and Judas is right there, perhaps it is. I guess one day we'll find it out. But the truth is it doesn't really matter because it doesn't change the emphasis of that one of you is gonna betray me. And so Peter's like, John, ask him. Ask him who it is. It's the one I give this bread to. And he gives it to Judas, and then Judas ups and goes, and they don't understand yet what is happening. And then he closes with this cryptic little detail that he went out and it was night. Why did John include that? Well, I mean, just a detail it's dark, it's evening, uh, the sun has gone down. Yes, it's in the darkness. But there's a spiritual corollary that I think is worth noting because all the way through John's gospel, John has been intent to contrast light and darkness, life and death. Specifically, light, he comes to again and again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In him was the life of men, and that life was the light of men. And chapter 1, verse 5, and the light has come into the world. John 3, when he talks to Nicodemus, Jesus says this, this is the judgment, light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works... Should be exposed. So it's the spiritual truth of the conviction of the Spirit of God that if you're living in a life of darkness, you hate the convicting work of the revealing work of the Spirit because it's like having a spotlight shone into the dark corners of your life. And so Judas is not only going out into the darkness, the physical darkness of night, Judas is literally embracing the darkness of a black soul, the darkness of night intent on rejecting God. Now, there's several lessons in this text. Certainly, and I've already referred to it, there is a, an, a unique conversation to be had here about the sovereign plan of God that has to be mentioned. That if you ever hear anybody somehow portraying Jesus as a victim, that Jesus didn't know what was going to happen, that Jesus was somehow just a flunky in the story and the, the Romans and the Jewish leaders and etc. make no mistake that none of this catches Jesus by surprise. That Jesus is not a victim. Jesus is not carried along by the whims of Judas or any others. In fact, Jesus, we're told, had set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem to accomplish what he knew he was going there to accomplish. He knew, according to the prophecies of Isaiah 53, that it was God's will to crush him. He knew that that was the outcome. And note well that he was intricately involved in literally planning his own sacrifice. You're like, how do you know that? Well, Jesus said it back in John chapter 10, a few months back I lay my life down that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I wasn't killed, I sacrificed myself. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. In other words, Jesus came willingly to offer himself as the substitute for our sins, the sacrificial lamb of God who went willingly up the hill of Calvary. But there's another beauty that undergirds this. There's a comfort and there's a challenge and there's a warning here. And the comfort is this, my friends. I know that a passage like this can raise painful issues in our lives because I know in a church family the size of ours that there are many who have been deeply betrayed. Now, to some degree, we can say every single one of us in this room has been betrayed to one degree or another. You've experienced disappointments in life. You've been pushed aside, perhaps. Maybe on the sports team, you were always on the third string, not the first string, Maybe somebody took your play in the musical or the play or whatever it is. Maybe somebody lied to you, deceived you, or cheated you in board games. You've all been betrayed. Fine. But some in this room have been betrayed in more devastating ways. So the statistics tell us that in North America today, that one in three little girls and that one in four little boys Will suffer physical or sexual abuse before they reach age 18. That's a devastating stat. And most of that abuse happens at the hands of someone that they should have been able to trust. Some in this room have faced the betrayal in a marriage where they have heard the devastating words from a spouse I have found somebody else. I want to end this marriage. Some of you have had business dealings with so called Christian brothers or sisters that ended in ways you could have never imagined. I can't imagine having done business with a Christian that it could have gone this way. And the scenarios are endless. You can fill in your blank. But the comfort is this that when we are betrayed, where do we turn? And what this text would tell us is that we have a Savior who not only sees and hears, but we have a Savior who knows. We have a Savior who understands. Isaiah 53 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So, Hebrews, we're going to read a few texts from this long book. It speaks of our great high priest Jesus, and in the second chapter, it speaks of him in this way it was fitting that he, the Father, should make the founder of our faith, the Son, perfect through suffering. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that Jesus took on human flesh and blood. He became one of us. He lived this earth. He walked with us. He understands our life. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Only the sinless Lamb of God who had walked those 33 years, understanding, walking our path, who sees and knows and understands in every respect what we have suffered could satisfy the wrath of God. And Jesus quotes from Psalm 41, when he says, David cries out, my close friend, my close friend has lifted his heel against me. And you see, perhaps the only true comfort, the only true comfort that we have when we have been betrayed is to get our eyes on Jesus. That in the context of wrongful suffering, Hebrews 12 goes on to commend us in this way, that you would consider him who suffered, who set the joy set before him, endured the cross. You have not yet suffered to the point of shedding blood, it says. But then it goes on to say this, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And then this phrase, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up. And causes trouble. You see, we have a comfort in our Savior that he knows. And that we dare not let bitterness enshroud our souls. But there's a challenge here. The challenge is, would we love like Jesus? Would we forgive like Jesus? To be blunt, will we look to Jesus for supernatural strength to do the impossible that we cannot do on our own, to actually treat our betrayers like Jesus treated his and if you turn back to Psalm 41 and you read the entire psalm, it's actually an imprecatory psalm. And you're like, what's an imprecatory psalm? An imprecatory psalm is one where you're calling down God's curses on your enemies. That's what the psalm is. God, you've seen what they've done to me, and I'd like you to, boom, blow them off the planet. It's those kind of prayers. Did you know they're in the Bible? They're there. Psalm 41 is one of them. God, would you take revenge? God, would you judge? God, would you bring justice? And would you bring justice now? Would you punish that terrible, horrible person who did this thing to me? Oh God, you've seen. But what happens when God doesn't answer the way we think he should? In Hebrews 5, it says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Great, but then go on reading. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who believe. You see, this is a difficult text to read and digest. Because Jesus cries out to the Father. The Father hears him, it says. The Father specifically who is able to save him from his own death. But we know that that is not how the story ends. We know that in just a couple hours Jesus is going to be out in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is going to be praying. He's going to be sweating drops of blood. And he's going to be saying, Father, if you can take this cup from me, take it away, but not my will, but thine be done. We know that later, as the guards come, that Peter pulls out his sword and he whacks off the ear of Malchus, one of the soldiers. And Peter's like, put, or Jesus is like, Peter, put your sword away. Put your sword away, Peter. Do you not think that I could call my father and in an instant, 12 legions of angels would come and turn this place upside down? Don't you think that God is able to save me from this? But how would the scriptures be fulfilled? And the most amazing part about this story is not only that Jesus turns himself over to his betrayers, but that he forgives them, he serves them, he loves them. And one commentator made this comment just poignantly, it just jumped off the page at me, that when Judas left the room that night, he left with clean feet. Like, think that through. Last week we talked of it, Jesus kneeling at the feet of Judas, his betrayer, cleaning his feet. How do you do that? You see, some of you are saying there is no human way possible that I could love like that. There is no human way possible that I could forgive. But if you don't forgive, you run the risk of that Hebrews 12 warning that a root of bitterness can take hold of your heart. And you're going to need the help of one who has been there where you've been. Lord, would you help me forgive others as you have forgiven me? And I don't know your stories and I don't need to know them to know that in a congregation of our size that every imaginable story of betrayal is present. You can imagine the details there here in our church. But the challenge I have to put in front of you is simply this, is last weekend we talked about the power of our new identity in Christ, that if you've been washed, if you're clean, that you're not the way, you're not the person you used to be. You don't identify by your old way. That old way is dead and buried and gone. I've been given a new identity. The old man is gone. Behold, a new man has come, 2 Corinthians 5. But the equal challenge is this, that with that freedom must also come to the point where we're saying, I have been given a new identity in Christ. I am no longer identified by my sin, by my old ways, but I am also no longer defined by the sin of another person. I will not be defined as a victim of another person's betrayal. I will not be controlled by that very same betrayer and the hands that betrayed me so many years ago. I'm a new creation in Christ, and even that old betrayal is dead and buried and gone. Amen? And it's hard to amen that because it is such a challenging truth. And I don't know what the Holy Spirit may be saying in this moment, but I know these stories in our church and I've been praying for you this week. Because you may not even believe it's possible to ever be free of that person who hurt you. But I can tell you, friend, that there is healing and freedom in the cross of Jesus. And that your personal shame and the shame heaped on you by someone else can be taken away there's a comfort and there's a challenge. There is also a warning. And just briefly before we end, I won't spend a lot of time here, but this warning that undergirds reminds us of the New Testament, there are so many warnings about persevering in our faith and the danger of drifting, the danger of falling away, the danger of denying our Lord. In 2 Timothy 3, it says, understand this in the last time, terrible times are going to come. People will be lovers of self, money, proud, arrogant, and I'm not going to even list it all. There's literally 19 terrible, horrible, rotten things. And then he ends with this phrase having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And the warning of the book of Hebrews is stark. The children of Israel who had seen The glory of God. They had a front row seat. They had seen the plagues in Egypt. They had walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. They had seen the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And still their hearts grow cold and hard. And Hebrews 3 says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin for we have come to share in Christ if indeed and here it is we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And there may be no more necessary issue for us to be talking about right now in the American church and praying into in the North American church than this issue to grapple with the great de-churching of our times. And there's a, a great book I've been reading on this topic recently. Some have called it the great falling away. Maybe even the great apostasy that the end times talks about. That the fastest growing religious demographic in North America today, in the free West, in the so-called Christian West, are the nuns and the duns. I got no religious affiliation. It's not that I believe in Jesus or don't believe. I just want no church affiliation. I'm done with that. I'm moved on. Most of these people, according to census data, would still claim to be Christians they just don't belong to a local church anymore. They don't see any need for it. They don't want it. Jim Davis and Michael Graham, in their book, call them the casually dechurched. Casually. There was no major trauma in their life. There was nothing that happened in the church. There was no theological debate. They just drifted. They got busy busy with life and family and work and kids. Weekend sports meant that you miss Sunday and you're traveling on the weekends, and then of course COVID-19 that shut the world down effectively for a couple years, and so many worship things were interrupted, and people woke up a couple years later and realized I haven't been in church in years, and I'm not sure I miss it, and still believe that most of them would say, yes, I'm a Christian, but I've just drifted. And the question is, how can someone drift away if they're connected into the body of the church? This question, across North America, there are literally millions of North Americans who used to be part of a church. Across Canada, there have to be millions. Across B.C., hundreds of thousands. Across the Fraser Valley, in fact, right here in Abbey and Mission, there have to be tens of thousands right here in our own city who are formally churched. You know many of them, right? The good news is that for most of them, they say, it wouldn't take much to get me back. If a friend would simply invite me, in fact, I've been wondering about it, I'm missing the church. But the warnings in the New Testament have to be taken seriously that we've got to guard our hearts and minds. We have to give ourselves to the fellowship of the saint. Why? Because you cannot afford to not be connected, to set the sails of our lives so that when the spirit blows, we're there. We've got to confess we are so easily grown complacent and we can drift. And before we know it, we may deny our Lord. Oh God, I know that there's a little Judas in me. I know that I so easily would deny you. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Oh God, would you guard my heart and soul and mind? Would you keep me? And so as we close today, in a moment, I'm gonna ask you to stand with me in Mission and East Abbey if you join as well, standing with us. We're gonna recite a prayer, a prayer of confession. It's not something uh, we typically do in our kind of liturgy. We're very low church borrowed a prayer from our Anglican brothers and sisters, the common book of prayer, that we speak out loud a word of confession, and primarily we are speaking to the Lord. But we say these words out loud so that one another can hear them as well. A prayer of confession, Lord, would you keep our hearts soft towards you? So would you stand with me? Stand with me over at East Abbey and Mission Campus. The words are gonna be on the screen, so obviously you're gonna have to have your eyes open to pray this prayer. And I'm going to ask you to just pray with me, and we're going to do it rather slowly. Think through the words that we're saying and make them your prayer if they apply. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. And so, Lord Jesus, we know ourselves far too well. We know how easy it is to be distracted with other things, even good things. To just get busy and the temperature of our spiritual life drops. How easy it is to get connected to the daily disciplines of spending time with you in the word and in prayer. And so, oh Lord God, would you draw us back to you. New every morning, your word tells us that your mercies are new for us every day and how we need them. How we need your mercies from the time our feet hit the floor as we get out of bed in the morning to say this is a, the day that the Lord has given to us and we want to serve you and walk with you in it. We want to live a vibrant, full-on, committed life to you. Lord, draw our hearts towards you. Draw our hearts toward one another that we might encourage one another. Hold one another accountable. But Father, in a particular way, as we look at this story of Jesus understanding the one who would betray him, and yet somehow being willing to lay his life down, even for his betrayer, that he would wash his feet, that he would show his love and demonstrate. And Father, I know for men and women in our congregation who have been betrayed by someone that they should have been able to trust. For some, it's decades ago, and it is... Long under the cross of Jesus, it's been dealt with, they've moved on, they're walking in freedom. But Father, I know there are others who are still not there at that point yet where they have stepped into the freedom that you offer them. And oh God, by your spirit, I pray that you would warm them. By the oil and wine of your spirit, that you would pour out that healing balm. That they would know that regardless of the hurt that they have experienced this side of eternity, that Jesus, you understand, you know, you see, you hear. And that you would give them the grace that they need to forgive the one who has harmed them. That they would know the joy of stepping into the freedom. That they will no longer be identified as the victim of someone else's sin. but they will be identified as a new creation in Christ. May it be true in all of our lives, Lord. For your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.